Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. You can subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast, at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite download service, and never miss the great content we offer. The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Ron Granary, Professor of History at the Department of National Security and Strategy at the U.S. Army War College and podcast editor of The War Room. It's a pleasure to have you with us. As long as there has been war, there have been prisoners of war, held up as victims or political symbols, or portrayed as heroic rebels in films and television, POWs have had a place in cultural representations of warfare. At the same time, however, historians of war and society have only just begun to integrate the study of POWs into their work. In their recent edited collection, Useful Captives, the Role of POWs in American Military Conflicts from the University of Kansas Press, professors Daniel Krebs and Lorian Foote have made a significant contribution to the integration of POWs into military history by bringing together a series of articles from the colonial era to the present, discussing topics ranging from the personal experiences of American POWs and POWs in American custody, to the development of policies regarding prisoners, to the memorialization of POW camps. Throughout, the book seeks, in the words of the introduction, quote, to demonstrate how the study of prisoners of war can provide answers to broad questions about war and the societies that fight them. And so we are delighted to have with us today both Daniel Krebs and Lorian Foote. Daniel Krebs is Associate Professor of History at the University of Louisville and the current occupant of the Harold K. Johnson Chair in Military History at the U.S. Army War College. He is the author of A Generous and Merciful Enemy, Life for German Prisoners of War During the American Revolution. Lorian Foote is the Patricia and Bookman Peters Professor in History at Texas A&M University and the author of The Yankee Plague, Escaped Union Prisoners and the Collapse of the Confederacy. It's wonderful to have you both with us today. Welcome to the War Room, Dr. Foote and Dr. Krebs. I just wanted to thank you, Ron, for having us and, and for this wonderful introduction. And also thank you to the folks at War Room for, for the interest in this topic and um, inviting me and Lorian here today. You bet. So how did this book come about? Well, it came about when Daniel came to Texas A&M University to give a talk about his book and also to talk to our grad students about professional development. And he gave a wonderful talk about that. And he and I went to dinner and talked about our mutual interest in prisoners of war and how we felt there was much more to learn about them than their experience in prison camps, even though, of course, this is vitally important to understand the experience of prisoners. We felt that there were many uh, aspects of prisoners of war as a topic that wasn't being well explored in the broader literature on warfare. So we want, decided that we wanted to host a conference at the Filson Institute in uh, the Filson Historical Society in Louisville, bringing together people who are studying prisoners, but asking them specifically to consider what does studying prisoners of war tell us about war 
that we didn't know otherwise? What what does the, how does this speak to big picture issues? So we did a call for papers, and we had a wonderful conference in 2017 dealing with this topic. People from all over the world came and presented, and we chose uh, several of the papers to form part of an edited volume. And so you two, obviously, Lorian, when you invited Daniel to come to Texas A&M, so you obviously, you knew that he worked on POWs and you worked on POWs, but did you two know each other professionally before you met at this event? He was actually invited by our mutual friend, Adam Seip. Also a former guest on this this podcast. That's right. (laughs) So I had never met Daniel before. So because Adam had invited him, that was how we connected. Gotcha. And Adam and I, we met actually, this might be interesting for for, for you, Ron. I mean, this is a side story that, that, that you guys can cut out. But Adam and I met years ago in D.C. at a uh, study uh, symposium at the German Historical Institute. A lot of academic relationships begin on New Hampshire Avenue in uh, in Washington, D.C. at the German Historical Institute. I mean, I, this is one of those interesting questions where people ask academics all the time, or where do you get the ideas for your books or how do these things happen? And you know, we, of course, would like to assume uh, and about ourselves that you know everything is, of course, you're perfectly logical, but there is always that el- that that element of personal history that brings people together, right? The friend of a friend, the colleague who says, you really need to meet this person. They're interested in what you're interested in. And so the idea that you you brought everybody together for this uh, conference, and when you were bringing the people together, what did you feel like you were trying to push against, right? Was that, were there ideas about prisoners of war that you felt were inaccurate that needed to be fixed? Um, or there, there were there particular things that you wanted to make sure that the contributors to the conference and then to the volume that they would hit in this. I'm going to go to Daniel first on this. Yeah, um, thank you. Uh, the issue I think in the historiography um, when it comes to POWs that 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 we were a little bit grappling uh, with is that POWs were often studied in the past as a as a kind of separate topic. So they were kind of you know separate from the history of warfare. And, and military history that 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 focuses on you know um, conducting and planning um, warfare, um, and what we felt is that this type of um, history is is not doing justice to the issues that come to the fore when you're looking at POWs. As I uh, often tell, tell tell my students is that when I'm when I'm looking at POWs, um, what I'm what what we're struggling with in the historiography is. That military history has often a focus on heroes, um, you know, those that that plan um, and win battles, that that plan and win wars, um, that lead the grand armies to victory. So that that is often the history that 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 we focus on when 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 military history talks about um, warfare. Um, POWs don't fit that kind of narrative. Um, they're, they're not these traditional heroes. And as I, as I often joke, um, I blame the 19th century for a lot of those views and, and, and Lorian might, might, might have her issues with that. But for me as an originally as a colonial and revolutionary American historian, I, you know, the 19th century here um, is to blame for a historiography that 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 does not see POWs as heroes. Um, um, in the 19th century, we have this invention of the nation and this invention of this idea of nationalism. 
Um, and what we see in that, that if you are a soldier, you're supposed to give everything for your cause, for your nation. Um, and POWs, by surrendering and entering captivity, obviously did not fulfill that kind of call to give everything to their cause, to their nation. Um, and so we see in the 19th and 20th century how these POWs then were written, if you will, um, out of the history of warfare, precisely because they had not given that full measure of devotion to their nation or their cause. Now, that's, this is good because this gets me back to you, to Lorian. Well, first of all, your your book has perhaps the greatest title I've ever heard, the greatest before the colon title, right? The Yankee Plague, right? So the idea of the, the problem for the Confederacy was bringing, you know, after you've taken people hostage, uh, taken people capt captive. You bring them, and then you have to somehow keep them in your community, but keep them separate from your community. But I am curious, the idea is, how different were things by the 19th century when we were talking about prisoners of war? And in American history, in what ways is the Civil War uh, a, uh, an important inflection point for the POW question in American military history? I think the Civil War is this critical moment because both sides want to fight a civilized war by the, by the time of the Civil War. And there's definite ideas that have been put into place based on the laws of war that have developed in the, the 18th century, by the 18th century, about how a civilized nation treats its prisoners. Mm -hmm. You're going to parole them. You're going to exchange them. You're going to treat officers as if they're honorable gentlemen. There's this code of conduct that if you follow it, it shows you're part of the ranks of the civilized. And if you don't follow it, you're one of the barbaric or savage nations. And the surrender is, is an inherent right that you have fighting civilized war. And so you have a set of expectations. And then what happens during the Civil War is that when the exchange breaks down and both sides are accusing each other of incredibly barbaric treatment of prisoners of war um, and how many prisoners are taken, going back to, to what day, nobody expected, that there would be hundreds of thousands of prisoners of war. Neither side is prepared for the, for the magnitude of that. And in a moment, I'm going to kind of hit on how this kind of sets up some dysfunction that I think lasts for the rest of American military history. Ooh. And so, so then you have this situation where neither sides were, were prepared. There's accusations of barbarity and there are more people who are taken prisoner than who die on the battlefield. And neither, because neither side is really prepared for this during the war and after the war, how both sides treat prisoners becomes the single most divisive issue in inhibiting reconciliation after the war. Uh, the treatment of even of the Confederacy's treatment of slaves is linked in the propaganda after the war to how they treat prisoners of war. Mm -hmm. So I think what we see happen is because this was such a traumatic experience for both sides, the military wants to move on and ignore it. And what we see is the U.S. military from this point on does not prepare for prisoners of war, does not prepare for the propaganda effect, because that's the big thing we see in the Civil War is the use of prisoners of war as propaganda to show that the other side is not civilized. You're the righteous one. The other side is unrighteous and the treatment of POWs. So it all becomes this debate about how POWs were treated. Mm -hmm. And that starts to dominate the literature. So this, I want to tie this back to what Daniel said about the problems in the historiography. So the literature after the Civil War becomes focused on 
How did both sides treat prisoners? Were they really barbaric? And the historiography bogs down in prisoner treatment. Mm -hmm. Daniel and I wanted, that's important. I mean, but Daniel and I wanted to move the conversation beyond how are prisoners treated to questions about how (laughs) capturing, taking, housing, um, politically dealing with prisoners what can that tell us about broader issues of warfare? And I'll get to some answers to that, but I'll pause in case mm-hmm. you have another question or Daniel wants to jump in. Well, well, and Daniel, I, I do want to get get to this because since you are a colonial era historian, that during the Revolutionary War, you point out that George Washington wanted to show how civilized the the colonials were, hoping that the British would reciprocate. But if I'm correct, right, the British did not treat uh, colonial soldiers as prisoners of war. They treated them as criminals and put them on prison ships. And at what point did that lead to or did it lead to any kind of retaliation on the American side? Well, and that that is one of those questions um, um, during the American Revolution. What what we see, as you rightfully uh, point out, uh, at the beginning of that war, um, we have the revolutionaries on one side, and we have the British on the other side, and 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 and, and both sides uh, suddenly take prisoners, and just like Lorian um, pointed out, they were sort of surprised by that. Suddenly, in 1775, both sides had guys from the other side in their hands, and 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 questions come up with how do what do we do with these people now? Traditionally, in the past, actually, prisoners were not kept for a long time. Prisoners were usually released fairly quickly because neither side had enough resources, funding, housing to actually keep them. Um, And this fails um, in the American Revolution. Suddenly, we have in the American Revolution um, prisoners who stay for years in each other's captivity. On, On the revolutionary side, they try to make these prisoners into an effort to force the British to accept the revolutionaries as legitimate belligerents, not as rebels um, to be treated and hanged um, um, summarily, but rather as a, a, a nation against which they fight a, a regular war and now their regular treatment of POWs was, uh, was, was demanded. Um, the British don't do that, and that is one of the main sources of contention throughout the war, and both sides repeatedly threaten um, retaliation. The numbers then, however, um, um, often don't, don't work out to the favor of one or the other side. Mm-hmm. Um, so when the Americans want to retaliate, the British have a lot of Americans in their captivity. That is, that is of course, then a problem for the revolutionaries or the other way around. If the British want to retaliate, but the Americans have many Amer- British soldiers in their hands, um, um, that, that work to the detriment of these kinds of um, ideas. Plus, um, and, and that is something that we have to understand with the American Revolution. It was as much a war of American revolutionaries against British soldiers as it was actually a civil war. And in that civil war, similar to what Lorian just said, the issue of POWs and the treatment of how do I treat then fellow Americans that are loyal to the crown versus fellow Americans that are revolutionaries um, becomes one of those issues. And frequently, actually... Um, 
um, mistreatment happens. Mm -hmm. um, there are many cases during the American Revolution where captured soldiers are executed or surrendering soldiers are, are shot. Because in that escalating violence that a civil war brings with it, these kinds of issues are, are not being resolved in a civilized way, similar to what, what Lorian has stated for the civil war. So here's a, a question that I, I keep thinking of. I can't, I can't count the number of discussions of military history that I've heard where um, people say that, well, when, when they fought War X, the people who organized it were surprised by fill in blank here with thing that they should not have been surprised by, right? They were surprised that the people didn't stop fighting after the army surrendered, right? They were surprised that, um, that you know, I don't know, they were surprised that people got killed. How can you be surprised that people are taken prisoner? And yet, when reading these essays, right, is it, it sounds like every time it's like, well, golly gee, what are we going to do with these people who are were taken prisoner? Um what do you think it says? This is this is actually asking for a little bit of philosophy here. What do you think it says that military planners seem to want to believe that the enemy will somehow dissipate into thin air after a after a conflict is over? Um, is it just because planning for POWs is so unglorious and boring that nobody wants to be responsible for it? Um, or is it, it, does it say something about how people plan wars that they seem to be repeatedly surprised by the fact that they just took a lot of prisoners? Lorian, you want to go first on that? I, I think there's two things involved. I think one is it's, it's actually difficult to think in advance about what you're, what you want to do with these people mm -hmm. at the same time that they take for granted that it's going to be easy. Mm-hmm. Because I think that we'll take prisoners, we'll take them off the front line and we'll put them somewhere mm -hmm. and then we hold them and, you know, that, that's what we'll do. But so many issues arise as part of that seeming little, seeming little simple process of mm -hmm. removing prisoners from the front that they don't plan for and don't think about that most of the time prisoners become a logistical issue. They become a propaganda nightmare. Uh, and, and I, I want to go back. I hope you'll ask me a little bit about the logistical issue. Cause I want to, I want to tell you a story that kind of relates to that, but I want to give Daniel a chance okay. to, to I do want to come back to that because just the very idea about how you walk the prisoners all the way to wherever or get them <laughs> to wherever you're going to put them. Right. Cause they, I have a friend, uh, uh, a friend who has written a book about German prisoners of war in Nebraska during the second world war. And so the idea that, you know, you're going to put prisoners and you're going to take them a whole long way someplace and put them someplace. But we'll come back to the logistics question. But Daniel, what about this, not only in, in your research, but in the in the essays in the book? Um, is, is it fair to say that uh, just the POW question is systematically underprepared for in the conflicts that you've studied? I, I, I would argue as a, as, a, as a typical historian with a yes and no. Um, Outstanding. Um, 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 I, I would argue that, that the problems of actually keeping and handling POWs is, is what repeatedly surprised people, mm -hmm. just like Loyan pointed out. But I would argue that beginning with the American Revolution and the French Revolutionary Wars, if we're staying that Western realm um, of warfare, I think it was actually a goal to keep to to make prisoners. 
Um, we, we see that with the American revolutionaries, for example, when the uh, British army um, or British German army, I should say, at Saratoga surrendered. Um, um, and by traditional means, these these guys would have been pardoned and, and essentially sent back to Europe to take up garrison duty um, and, and does, you know, remove from the war and remove from the battlefield, but not in any way, uh, you know, kept as, as POWs. Instead, what happens, the revolutionaries do not let that surrendering um, British army um, leave the country. They keep them in the country for the remainder of the war. Um, and we see that then um, also with the you know captives that they take at Trenton. They are kept as, as, as prisoners because what the revolutionary realizes is that these captives weaken the British war effort because the British now have to replace these soldiers, have to send up new armies, etc. So I would argue that with these revolutionary wars at the end of the 18th century, there is a change that people want to take prisoners because these prisoners weaken the other side's war effort. However, what they struggle with is once I have then thousands or hundreds, later tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of POWs, that is when we're then all of a sudden in a round, like Lorian said, where now I have to feed house and deal with these people. And that is what I'm not prepared for. Especially when you consider, at least into the 19th century, and I'm going to come back to you, Laurie, on logistics, as I promised. It, if you're having trouble, certainly when, when I think about the, the history of the, civil, the American Civil War, I think that both armies in the beginning, right, they had trouble feeding, clothing, caring for, lodging, keeping from dying of dread diseases of their active duty soldiers. And so how much effort are you really going to put into protecting other folks? And so... So what is the logistical problem, right? Is you have to get them, you know, because you, you don't, you know, especially, let's say, especially if you're the Confederates and you're retreating or, or you're, or, you know, I don't know, where are you, where are you putting these prisoners and how are you getting them to where you're putting them? So I want to address this uh, by saying something about the moment that I had when I was researching and writing the Yankee plague, mm -hmm. because I was not someone who'd studied prisoners of war before. I'd written several books about other topics before that. And I'm reading, finding all these things in the primary sources about thousands of Union prisoners escaping at the end of the Civil War. I'm thinking, I've never heard of this. What is going on? And it caused me to begin kind of looking at the historiography on the American Civil War. And as I am seeing prisoners being moved all over the Confederacy from Andersonville to Charleston, South Carolina, from Libby down to, you know, from Virginia to Georgia to South Carolina, as I'm seeing the incredible movement that POWs go through, and I start thinking about not only do you have to march them off the battlefield under guard, then you've got to put them in holding places near the battlefield, then you've got to march them to a train station, then you've got to get them on a train, take them somewhere, you've got to guard the trains, you've got to guard where you take them. How much manpower is this taking? How much using the trains to do this, is this meaning that the trains aren't being able to be used to bring men to the front? You know, I mean, things that I know military people think about all the time, but I hadn't thought of. Mm -hmm. So as I was trying to find answers to this, I was looking at famous Civil War books on campaigns and battles. And I would go to the index to look at prisoners of war, and I would discover that prisoners of war weren't even in the index. That people are writing campaign histories where 50,000 men are taken prisoner, and they're not even talking about it. And I thought, well, are they not talking about it because it's not important? Or are they not talking about it because they just don't even think you need to integrate prisoners into the history they're writing? So I started researching the issue. And what I'm realizing is, okay, I'm continually finding commanders saying things like, 
well, we have to put off the offensive for two weeks because we have to process all these prisoners. We can't march forward. One of my graduate students wrote his a dissertation about Grant's processing of prisoners. Um, and what he found is after Grant captures uh, Henry and Donaldson, his offensive is delayed for many days because of the need to send all of the prisoners up to Illinois. Uh, and so we're, it's amazing to me that Civil War historians have not integrated prisoners into the operational history of the war when that was just one example, when I am now convinced that there's multiple occasions that processing prisoners, moving them off the battlefield drastically affects the timing of operations, what commanders are able to do, how they're able to feed their own men. In my book, I found that the Union capture of Wilmington, the Confederacy is not able to evacuate all of the stores that they're trying to evacuate from Wilmington because the railroads are caught up trying to transfer prisoners around. And so the Union captures a lot of ammunition and equipment that they wouldn't have otherwise if the Confederacy wasn't dealing with a logistical nightmare uh, because it wasn't prepared for its prisoners. See, that is that is fascinating. And yet, you know, when you say it, as with so many things historians do, right? After you say it, everybody says, well, of course, that's obvious. And it's like, well, it wasn't obvious before I before I researched it. Thank you very much, right? But but I think that's that is an interesting thing to think about, right? That every we're, we're talking about finite resources. And um, and then and and finite resources, which often then means is the soldiers or the the resources that are placed uh, that are given the responsibility for dealing with the prisoners are stretched very thin. So the the commander of Andersonville, who am I am I correct that the Confederate commander of Andersonville was executed for his treatment yes. of prisoners? That he was a he was not the greatest officer in the Confederate army. He was completely overwhelmed. He did not get the support that he needed. Right? He may have been guilty of terrible things. But I think about this because as we as we we uh, we already approach the end of this brief conversation, the stories of Abu Ghraib and the whole problem of you have soldiers who are themselves undertrained, overburdened, um, uh, undersupervised. And then it creates then that the, the treatment of prisoners of war becomes a huge, you, talk, you talked about propaganda, becomes a huge uh, danger zone for the United States that if you're not handling prisoners properly, then it, it can cast terrible aspersions on your entire war effort. And yet these are the kinds of things that people only recognize in retrospect that, oh yeah, we probably should have paid more attention to that. Um, and, and Ryan, go ahead, Daniel, uh, please. just because you mentioned that following also what Lorian said, what, what, what recent research, and we have actually a, a chapter in, in our book on that by, uh, by Paul Springer, if I may, please, you know, plug his name. <laughs> um, um, he is at the, uh, war college, um, ear war college. Um, um, and, and, and he actually argues that, that, that we have entered now a phase in American history um, in which during those wars against non-state actors, so the war on terror, mm -hmm. et cetera, over the last two decades, the United States actually does not consider it worth anymore the costs and costs of just what you just mentioned from recruiting future terrorists to to the propaganda to um, potential embarrassments, uh, uh, nightmares such as Abu Ghraib. Um, these costs are too much. And as a result, in these kinds of conflicts, the U.S., he argues, is simply conducting wars without taking POWs. Mm -hmm. That um, that if there is anybody taking captive, they're just let go. They 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 might be you know um, uh, we, we might 
might might take the identity. We might you know uh, try to you know take the biometrics, etc. But beyond that, there's not much that that the U.S. military does because taking POWs is 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 a problem these days. So unlike the 19th century, when when we see this in um, 20th century, when we see these um, efforts to to weaken the other side by taking as many POWs as possible. Interesting. There's something to be said there about the deterritorialization of warfare, right? If you're no longer worried about about the size of the enemy force or about holding particular territory. You- yeah, and absolutely. Paul goes goes even further and then argues that not not only are we uh, the U.S. trying to avoid taking POWs, they're also trying to move war toward that 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 you know toward robotics, mm-hmm. um, so that 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 any questions even of casualties do not appear anymore. Um, um, especially on the U.S. side, of course, um, and and that at least is is the focus of his research. Interesting. So we are just about out of time, but I wanted to ask both of you um, where your research is going next. Are you continuing in this field of studies of uh, prisoners of war, or have you, uh, or are you moving into something else? Lorian, I see I see you smiling as I ask this question, so I am curious what what are you working on next? Or no? I have a book. I have a book coming out in August called "Rights of Retaliation: Civilization, Soldiers, and Campaigns," and it's about how the Union and the Confederacy use prisoners of war in retaliation episodes to negotiate what civilized war is supposed to look like in practice. So I use prisoners of war to show cultural ideas of warfare and how prisoners were a part of this process. And then I'm also working on a project about dogs in 19th century warfare. Oh man. Okay. Well, good. Daniel, what are you, what are you working on next? Um, at, at least from my, uh, during my time here at the War College, um, I actually started working on an essay about escalation, um, a topic that we discuss here quite, quite often in, in, in our courses here during the American War of Independence, essentially trying to make a, or, or do a case study um, on how the American revolutionaries were, were able to escalate um, horizontally and vertically to put the British government, um, the loyalists, um, their army and navy increasingly into these disadvantageous positions, if you will, um, the revolutionaries here were able to establish escalation dominance. Mm-hmm. Um, um, that that at least is an is an argument that I want to make in that essay while I'm here at the War College. Great. Well all interesting topics. And I, I, I assure you that uh, you know, when those works come out, we will be happy to invite you back to talk about them. Um, there's obviously a lot to go into on this topic of prisoners war. We're about out of time for today, but I want to encourage listeners who have been intrigued by what we've talked about to make sure that they find themselves a copy of Useful Captives, the Role of POWs in American Military Conflicts, uh, copyright 2020 from the University of Kansas Press. Uh, please go out and get a copy um, and please let us know what you think about it. But for today, I wanted to thank Professor Lorian Foote and Professor Daniel Krebs for joining us on A Better Peace. Thanks so much. Thank you for having us and thank you for this opportunity. You bet. Um, And thanks to all of you for tuning in and listening to us. Please send us your comments on this program and on all the programs and send us your suggestions for future programs. Uh, And please subscribe to A Better Peace. And after you have subscribed to A Better Peace, because of course you would want to subscribe, please rate and review this podcast on your podcatcher of choice so that other people can find us too. We're always interested in growing this community so that we can have more people tuning in for conversations like this. This conversation is over, but there will be others, and we look forward to welcoming you. But until next time, 
From the War Room, I'm Ron Granary. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.